Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. It's good to have you with us as always. You know, at one time, Bakari Sellers was the youngest member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, elected at the age of 21. He's now a prominent attorney in South Carolina and a leading commentator on CNN. He's also the author of an inspiring and timely new book just out last week called My Vanishing Country, about growing up as a young black man in the rural South. And he's one of the most powerful voices guiding us today in our response to the murder of George Floyd and so many others before him, and to the protests that followed, sadly, too many of them turning to violence. We spoke to Bakari Sellers from his home with his 17-month-old twins not far away. Bakari Sellers, it's good to see you again. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bill. You've uh, you've always been a hero of mine and, and somebody who I've been on air with who's pushed me to be better and so uh and you you can drink red wine with the best of them so i'm i'm, I'm grateful <laughs> to be here with you my friend actually my my brother from another mother as we said <laughs> I, feel that, I feel that way about you now i have to tell you uh i loved your book uh and i started reading your book i want to talk about the book but we got to talk about what's going on today because i see them as almost one and the same yes uh i started reading your book the day after george floyd floyd was killed and I was stunned by your first chapter to learn that 32 years ago, in 1968, your father, who was unarmed, was one of 28 young black men shot by white police officers on the campus of South Carolina State College in Orangeburg, South Carolina. That was 52 years ago, Bakari. I thought we made a lot of progress since. Guess not, huh? We made progress, Bill, but we still have so far to go. And the way that I frame it is so people understand a lot of a lot of my friends, a lot of my my white friends, they only look at the issue of race through the lens of their lifetime. And in my vanishing country and throughout my life, I try to give more historical context than that. My father got started in the movement because in 1955, Emmett Till was brutally killed, lynched, thrown in the bottom of the Mississippi River. You think about Jimmy Lee Jackson and Medgar Evers, you think about Goodman, Schroener and Cheney, um, even before you get to the Orangeburg Massacre, where Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond and Delano Middleton were killed. And to your point, my father's 75 now, I'm 35, and we have many of the same shared experiences um, from Ahmaud Arbery to Breonna Taylor to George mm-hmm. Floyd, um, all the way back to Trayvon and Tamir and Eric Garner and Alton Sterling, even Clemente Pinckney and the other eight who were shot in the Charleston Church Massacre. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we just, we have work to do. And now we're finally at a reckon, reckoning. I mean, you know, I was able to speak with with Brother Cornell West, who calls it a rebellion, um, that you had these uprisings in the street, just sick and tired of institutional racism and systemic injustice. Are you today feeling frustrated or 
angry or what? You know, to be black in this country is to live in a perpetual state of grief. And so I'm in a different stage now. I was looking at the memorial site of George Floyd and I was sad. I was in a state of sadness. Um, um, you know, I, um, I've been angry. I've been really sad. I've been hopeful. I've been faithful. Um, you know, I, my, my daughter is turning 15. I have 17 month old twins. Um, I'm going to remain steadfast regardless of the emotional state I'm in. And I'm going to persevere, Bill, because, you know, people like yourself, um, people like my father have worked so diligently to make this a more perfect union that there's an entire generation that cannot give up on this American experiment. We just haven't gotten it right. And we need to fix that. It. I heard you say the other day on New Day with John Berman, uh, um, something very powerful. I I believed. Uh, if I'm quoting you correctly, it's hard to be hard to be black in this country when your life is not valued. You know, I, I firmly believe that, and people are taken aback sometimes by the truth. Um, but you know, there is a question of the value of black lives in this country. And that's why we chant and say black lives matter. There's not a question of the value of police lives. There's not a question of the value of white lives, but there is a question of the value of black lives. And I, when I look at the incident in um, Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota, I, um, there's nobody who can tell me that those officers saw George Floyd as being human. They, they put their knee on his neck for over eight minutes and they killed him like a dog in the street. And none of the officers did anything. And mm -hmm. the bystanders were yelling for them to get off his neck. He was dying. This man, a grown man, literally called out for his dead mother, right? And so there is no one who can tell me that they saw him as being human. They only saw him as being less than. And because they saw him as being less than, it goes through this entire sense that I always tell people that in this country, black folk don't get the benefit of their humanity and whether or not it's the social conditions and systemic conditions we live in or whether or not you see it on the streets. Um, that's why I say it's hard because your life simply doesn't have the same value. And that's what scares me about raising children in this new, this new world. What do you tell your kids? I'm working through that now. Um, I'm struggling with that. I tell my kids the truth. But I also tell them how beautiful they are. And I tell them that uh, they can be proud of the skin that they're in. And I tell them, um, I, I challenge them to be the best possible them and to create and, and, and understand the seller's name is one that rings loudly in terms of justice and freedom and truth. And we have to make sure that we become a part of something larger than ourselves but i'm even asking on, on on tv now what are white parents telling their children mm -hmm. because for, for me it's it's empowering and emboldening my children to be black in this country but i hope white parents are having these conversations with their children as well and also living the our children watch us and so it's the way that you live it's the way that you interact i, I said the other night that there are only two choices in this country. You understand this, Bill. You involved in this. I mean, you, you, this is who you are. You can either be racist or anti-racist, right? There is no, there, those are the only two choices. It's no, I'm not, I'm not racist, but I'm going to sit at home. No, you have to be an anti-racist, right? You have to root it out. 
And are we teaching our children those messages? Are you going to protect my child, my black child, the same way you will protect your white child is the question that we ask. One thing that I find it very difficult to deal with. Um, if you look at, you mentioned Eric Gardner, um, Garner, he was selling, he was killed. He was selling allegedly fake, fake or illegal cigarettes or folk cigarettes. I mean, you know, George Floyd was what allegedly trying to pass a fake $20 bill. Ahmed Arbery was jogging. Yes. I mean, it's such, there's such trivial things that happen and yet they were killed by white police officers. And, um, so you, you address this in your book a little bit. What is it about dark skin that just drives a lot of white police officers to do really bad things? The, 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 first of all, all those crimes you mentioned, Tamir Rice was playing with the Koi gun. Alton Sterling. Yeah, was there selling, you go. Right. Uh, Alton Sterling was selling CDs. Uh, Eric Garner, Lucy cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, Trevay, Tra Tra Trayvon Martin was walking with um, Arizona iced tea and um, and Skittles. And um, Sandra Bland got pulled over for a speeding ticket. Um, um, Walter Scott. Walter Scott owed child support. Right. None of these are death penalty crimes. No, none of them are not close, not close. Um, and so you're right. I mean, what is it about? And this is what this is what like if you're that scary, like don't be a police officer, like every police officer I know that it invokes this defense. Now, I love law enforcement. I have law enforcement in my family. So by no means is this a generalization. But the law enforcement officers that raise this defense often that I'm scared of this black man because like, if you're that scary, don't be a police officer, right? Like there is nothing, there is nothing for you to inherently fear because of the color of my skin yet. When still we see that time and time again. Yeah. Um, we just, just don't understand it. And I don't know, I know you've dealt with this a lot as a, as a legislator, as a civil rights leader, does is it mean more training or better screening of people be get it before they get in the police force or better education or so i mean there are a few things we can do and i'm you know now we're having see bill this is a conversation that we need to have more broadly because one of the things that that drives me crazy is democrats and republicans right now like get out the street come back and vote in november no like we've been doing that all the time somebody dies they become a hashtag then we tear shit up and then we, you know, we um, we grieve at the memorial and then nothing happens. Right. Right. And so, like, I want solutions. And so I want people to start talking about having a national database for bad officers, because right now you can get fired from one police uh, department, go two towns down and become the chief. Right. right. Because we have no database. We have a database for um, uh, social workers. We have a database for people who work in um and um, uh, preschools and, and nurseries. We have a database for people who work in nursing homes. We need one for police officers. That's first. The second thing is, which is even more powerful, is that George Floyd and Breonna Taylor literally paid for the law enforcement departments that killed them through the Department of Justice. The grants that are that the Department of Justice uses our taxpayer dollars for 
for funding these departments. They, I'm not saying defund them. In fact, I don't think that's politically feasible. But what I am saying is with the Department of Justice and these grants and funds, make sure they have accountability. Make sure they have transparency. Make sure they have civilian oversight. They don't have any of these things right now. That's number two. Number three, we have to limit qualified immunity. When you're suing these departments, they just hide behind their shield. Like you can't even, they can just, yeah. it's just immunity. I mean, mm-hmm. so you have to limit that number. And number four, even is probably the most important. It's something that Eric Holder did, which I'm really disappointed that the Obama administration didn't uh, necessarily achieve this in their, in their eight years. But you have to lower the standard by which you can bring federal civil, federal criminal cases against law enforcement officers. Right now, that standard is is so high. I mean, you, you have to prove for all intents and purposes that the man has a swastika tattooed on his chest, which it's just hard to do. And so that is that is my sentiment. And that's my um, that those are four concrete items that I think we can do outside of arrest all the officers in Minneapolis and also arrest all the officers in Louisville. Meanwhile, what do would you say to those people who go from um, legitimate, if we can call it, maybe it's a loaded word, protest to actually destruction of, of property. As we saw in Washington, D.C. last night, yeah. setting fire to the basement of St. John's Church. I mean, yeah. I, I, first of all, there, there are a lot of protesters out there with righteous anger. And then there are people who are on the far right and the far left who have co-opted these movements. We have to acknowledge that. I do understand the trauma and anger and pain that is happening in our streets. As you know, what King called it, King called rioting the language of the unheard. Yep. Um, and you don't listen to me, so watch me throw this brick through this window. You, I bet you hear me now, right? Now, I, I, I want people to stop flipping over cars. I want them to stop burning. I want them to stop looting. I want them to stop rioting, right? I want all of that to stop because it takes away from our movement. But if you're going to ask them to stop, I want you to be able to, in the same sentence, say, I want peace and I also want justice. I want you to be as mad for the life of George Floyd as you are for the target that was looted. Right. I I want there to be that same type of uh, veracity. I want there to be that same type of energy as as the young kids say. Now, keep that same energy. Right. I want there to be that same energy for the death of a young black boy. Um, as there is for a target or anything else. What is your take on how Donald Trump has handled this particular crisis? And he's been tweeting again all morning as we speak, um, as well as for the last four days. Helpful? Actually, actually, man, I am really happy and thankful that Donald Trump has been quiet. You know, I I prefer him to tweet USA shows. I guess that's what he was doing when he said law and order. Mm -hmm. I was going to tweet back psych or, uh, you know, some of my other NCIS. I don't know what he was tweeting, but I'm all for, you know, Um, you know, he he went out last week because when he opens his mouth, he sounds like um, Lester Maddox. Right. He sounds like George Wallace. Yeah. He quoted a 1967 segregationist and then said, oops, (laughs) like Miami police chief. Yeah. (laughs) that? And so, first of all, let me just the the I'll tell you, like the large political, like if we're sitting on CNN, you and I, my my comment would be uh, that 
you know, when 102,000 people have died and you're having race riots in your street and you're not able to come out of the house and say anything, you're ill-equipped to be president of the United States, which is fact check true, right? But also there's a part of me that says, I don't need him or want him to say anything right now. Many times when your house is on fire, you don't want the arsonist to start giving you any type of, you know, uh, direction. Um, and, and, And Bill, on a very personal level, I think right now we need a leader with a level of empathy, a level of compassion. Um, understanding humanity. These are all attributes that Donald Trump doesn't understand. And in that same breath, I can say that I, I need Joe Biden to leave the basement and put a mask on and come outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And be heard, be, be more seen and more heard on this issue. Yes. You, you have to. I mean, I, you can go, you can take the train to Philadelphia or down to DC. I mean, it's easy. Uh, we can organize. I mean, we're not, we're not putting you on the front lines of the march, but you need to be there so that people can see you as a part of our struggle. Have you sent that message to him? I have. And uh, I think that there are a lot of people who, uh, I think that there are a lot of people who echo the same sentiment I do. And, you know, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden and I'm going to do everything I can to get Joe Biden elected. But also during this process, I'm going to push Joe Biden to be that much better. We have to. We're talking to Bakari Sellers' new book out just a, a few days ago called My Vanishing Country. Very powerful book and very timely book. Hardly recommend it. We'll take a quick break and come back with Bakari. Talk more about what he calls the forgotten South here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast with Bakari Sellers brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the good men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They are among those on the front lines in today's coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, including meatpacking workers. Meatpacking plants represent one half of all the COVID-19 hotspots in the United States and in our grocery stores, where at least 100 have died and 5,500 grocery clerks have tested positive for coronavirus. And we thank them for their heroic work and for their support of the Bill Press Pod. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie. And we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we continue with Bakari Sellers, a good friend, uh, at one time the youngest uh, man ever elected to the state legislature in South Carolina, now a commentator on CNN, author of the powerful new book, My Vanishing Country. Uh, Bakari, you use a couple of phrases that really struck me. Um, maybe as some of us think of the South, we think of the great city of Charleston, uh, which I love. Uh, we think of Atlanta, you know, we think of whatever. You talk about the forgotten South. Yeah. Uh, you use the phrase, the Carter of shame. Uh, describe that to us. This is the South most of us don't know. Yeah. Most Americans don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I talk about growing up in Denmark, South Carolina, where we had three stoplights and a blinking light. <laughs> where uh, we used to have black economic mobility and upward mobility, where we had two HBCUs, where um, people could go into the manufacturing, to the textile plants and get those $15, $20 an hour jobs. But now at the CAFTA and NAFTA, all those plants are gone after the forgotten politics of, of, of this country when it comes to rural America. Um, many of the, um, many of the, uh, uh, um, small the, the small businesses are just boarded up. They've been replaced mm -hmm. with deserts that I live in. Um, lack of access to quality care, a quarter shame where kids go to school and their heating and air don't work, infrastructure falling apart. And so all of these things um, contribute to the fact that our um, our country is vanishing before our eyes. And the poverty level extreme it, across extreme the board. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a direct correlation between what you look like and where you're from. One of the things I wanted to do with this book is throw on his head the notion that um, um, you're being, because in the media, we do this all the time. We say that rural is white and we say that um, uh, uh, working class is white. Those are code words, right? And when we say urban, we mean black. Right. I wanted to say that, no, that's, that's not the way this is anymore. Um, you know, we have, we have these voices that we have to uplift. You know, I talk about the church ladies who wear the big hats, who, um, you know, when you hug them, you smell like uh, Chanel number eight all day long or number nine all day long. <laughs> they use two sticks of butter in their uh, sweet potato pie that they cook for you. Um, but they are, the, they are the backbone of our communities and the backbone of the Democratic Party. Um, and I talk about those, those, those men who uh, sit in the barbershops all day and they, uh, they, they're not there to get a haircut, but they just tell you the story about when Sonny Liston used to box. Um, but they have the mm -hmm. of, of uh, generations. And so those are all things that I wanted to lift up in all voices I wanted to share. You talk about a couple of institutions um, that we that are so important in the African-American community. One are the you just mentioned the HBCUs uh, and you particularly with Morehouse. Uh, tell us, you know, why they're so significant and what contribution that they've made. 
I always tell people that the overwhelming majority of engineers, doctors, attorneys, black professionals have all come from HBCUs. And it's that sense of pride, that sense of leadership that they give you. I went to Morehouse and people, they they always get a little tied up when I tell them it was a a robustly diverse experience. We had, although it's an historically black college, all male school, we've had people from all across the world who attended that school, um, including Samuel L. Jackson, David Satcher, Spike Lee. Um, John David Washington and Martin Luther King Jr. And Julian Bond, correct? My hero, Uncle Julian. <laughs> right. Uh, and then I was surprised, the other institution, and by the way, um, I was um, a member of Glide Methodist Church in San Francisco at one time, and then um, First AME Church in uh, um, in Los Angeles under the great pastor Chip Murray. Uh, the Black Churches. And you said in your book that you're you've been disappointed in the black churches that they've slid done some backsliding. Correct. Why? I mean, what do you mean? Black churches during my father's generation were a place where you not only went and got spiritual sustenance, but you you were able to go and meet, congregate. They, they were churches of progressive politics. You know, they weren't afraid to to get into the mix. I mean, SCLC was on the front lines with CORE and SNCC and the Black Panther Party, um, and now. Um, not all of our churches by any stretch, not all, but there's been a rush to see which church can become the largest and have branches, um, which church can be a mega church instead of focusing on how we uplift the voices of the people when we see that there are systems of oppression that are killing our people daily. Uh, so they're it's not. A it's a challenge. You know, I, I sell people that in this book, I challenge, you know, um, I challenge this country. I challenge the church. It's a love story to the South. It's a love story to my father, my mother. It's a love story to my children. But at the end, it's a challenge to push us to become a more perfect union. And what Abraham Lincoln said, you know, believe in the better angels of our nature. And so I believe that the church, it has some amazing leaders, some of which I named, but it has to regain its footing as a pillar of change in our communities. One of those leaders you name is Reverend William Barber Correct. of the Moral Mondays uh, in uh in North Carolina. Yeah, he's a leader. He harkens back to the old school days. Uh, whenever I, I, first of all, I don't speak. If I'm ever on panel with him, I refuse to speak after him because that, <laughs> that ain't a good, that's not a good place to be. Wise man. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he harkens back to the days of the Ralph David Abernathy's, the Martin Luther King Jr.'s, those, those, uh, those booming voices that, that changed the world. Uh, I hear your twins in the background. Yeah, God bless you. You're, you're, you're going to hear them. <laughs> I love it. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about South Carolina politics, too. So you ran when you were 29 years old after serving in the state legislature for eight years. You ran for lieutenant governor of South Carolina uh, as a Democrat and as a black man. Uh, trying to achieve the impossible task, Correct. Well, it, it, it damn sure was impossible. I didn't. <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, I ran, I ran for lieutenant governor. I was, I was young. I was black. I was a Democrat. I was a young black Democrat. I tried to be the first. Uh, I tried to be the first African American elected statewide since 1876. When I three, three strikes against you. No, no. <laughs> uh, I tried to be the first African American elected since 1876. When ironically enough, the Democrat and the Republican who were running uh, in 1876 for lieutenant governor were both black. That's that's when black folk were the majority before we went to, uh, you know, uh, making sure that we can vote. And so um, Tim Scott actually won his race that year. So Tim Scott, who's a friend of mine, 
Um, his politics leave more more to be desired than you can imagine, but at least he is cognizant of the issues of race and speaking out, unlike most people in his party. But he won his race and he became the first black elected since Reconstruction. Uh, but I, I ran that race and um, got 41 percent of the vote, 42 percent. Mm-hmm. of the vote. I did pretty good. And I tell people that I, I chipped away at the glass so that um, Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum could come and chip away a little bit more. And maybe Jamie Harrison or Ralph Warnock or maybe any of these people can shatter that glass um, this year. Well, I was, that's, of course, what I was going to ask you. So here is Jamie Harrison now uh, running against um, an incumbent senator by the name of Lindsey Graham that many people around the country, dem- mostly Democrats, but some Republicans, too, would be just as happy to be to see uh, as a former U.S. senator. Does Jamie Harrison, as a African-American Democrat, have a prayer of winning in South Carolina? Yeah, he has a prayer. He has a legitimate chance. And I, I I tell you this with every ounce of humility that I have in my body, that he's running a better race than I did. Um, it's going to be tough to get over that 45, 46 percent barrier. But if anybody can do it, Jamie can. He's outraised Lindsey Graham. He's outraised. Whoa. He's outraised the chairman of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee, <laughs> not once, but twice, if I'm not mistaken. And so I let everybody listen. Go to Jamie's website and chip in five dollars. I mean, um, you know, that's important to, to 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 get things done. But we also have Cal Cunningham running against Tom Tillis. Yes. In Carolina. Um, we have Ralph Warnock, who's running against um, uh, Leffler. And um, and, and um, I forget the the other Republican, the congressman um, uh, down in, in Georgia. And so we have some races in the south where there's going to be some action and these races are going to be close. Is there. Uh, a feeling among the people of South Carolina that Lindsay is too much now big a, a big Washington star and not taking care of his hometown. There his is home state. there is a concern that and we that happens in the South a lot. People don't want you to be trapped in in Washington D.C. They prefer you put the values of South Carolina over the values of your party. And so there are a lot of old old head Republicans who don't like the fact that he is. Um, you know that the comparison they use about. Um, Lindsay is, do you know how sharks always have the school of small fish that swim with them mm-hmm. around them? That Lindsay is one of those small fish. And since, um, and since, since John McCain passed away, who was a big shark, um, right. had to find another big shark to latch onto. And that's been Donald Trump. Lindsey Graham is not who I knew, you know, 10 years ago. He was, uh, you know, somebody who stood on some level of moral and principle who spoke out. I mean, the best example that I use is that just, you know, 10 days ago when Joe Biden made those asinine comments about black voters um, to my friend Charlemagne the God, you know, Lindsey Graham spoke out about those comments and Lindsey hasn't said anything. He's been quiet as a church mouse peeing on cotton when it comes to George Floyd. You know, it's that type of hypocrisy that envelops who Lindsey Graham has become. In the book, you, um, spend a lot of time talking about one of your heroes who has long been one of my heroes, uh, and that's Congressman Jim Clyburn. Correct. Yeah. Tell us about the, uh, you know, his importance and impact in South Carolina and in your life. Um, for me, Congressman has always been a hero. Um, he comes from you know, he's one of the my, my in my book, I write this line. I say that heroes walk among us. My dad never wanted us to just think it was, you know, Martin, Malcolm and Rosa. He wanted us to understand who these heroes were. And Jim has always been somebody who 
um, we looked up to. He came from the struggle. He was a part of the movement. He ran as a young black Democrat in South Carolina and lost three times statewide. Uh, and then finally got that seat in Congress. And he's been the highest ranking black man in the history of the United States Congress. He's in leadership. And, you know, I just, um, you know, his strength, his courage, you know, he's never, he was never someone to be loud. You know, Congressman Clyburn is not a loud guy. He yeah. wants to drink his gentleman's jack with Coke and like let the world spin on his axis. But when he does speak, I don't know that there's anyone in Washington, D.C. who commands that level of respect outside of maybe John Lewis. And so I want to give both of them their flowers while they're living, because um, that's a very Southern saying. But we like to give people their flowers while they're living to let them know how much we appreciate them. Uh, I loved uh, the um, scene you uh, talk about when you went to Congressman Clyburn and told him you were thinking about running statewide for uh, lieutenant governor. Uh, and he smiled and said to you, <laughs> if anybody could have done it, I would have done it already. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I said, well, damn, Congressman, that ain't really what I was expecting to hear. But I understand your point. Um, he's always been somebody to shoot it to you straight. And, um, you know, he, he's somebody who I wanted to lift up in this book and even have even give background on those honest conversations we've had. Uh, so I love the book. The book is great. Congratulations. It's great having you still as a strong voice on CNN. Thank you. Uh, but what's next for Bakari Sellers? I want to run for Congress. And so whenever whenever Congressman Clyburn is is ready to, to go on, um, we'll do that. If if, um, you know, I don't I don't know if I would participate in a Biden administration. My family is young and we're getting settled. So that's not something. But other than that, I'm enjoying being a husband, a father, a lawyer and prepared to run for Congress whenever that chance presents itself. Well, it's great having you, your voice out there. And uh, I know I don't have to tell you uh, to keep it up because that's who you are. <laughs> I am, Bill, I want you to know me. I called you just to talk about my book and, and get an opportunity. And I, I just you didn't have to do everything you've done for me. But I wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for propping me up and giving me that that platform. You're a great friend, Bakari. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. All right. See you again soon. And that's it for today's podcast with Bakari Sellers. Thanks to Bakari and thanks to all of you for joining us. And please, we remind you once again, so important for you to subscribe to the Bill Press Pod. So you, if you haven't already done so, wherever you're listening to this podcast, just pull up the Bill Press Pod, click on subscribe, and you're in. Also remind you, it's a great book, My Vanishing Country. I encourage you to buy it and to read it. Um, there's a link to buy the book, of course, in our episode notes for today's podcast. Thanks again for joining us. I hope you'll follow me on Twitter, too, at Bill Press Pod, and we'll be looking for you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.